Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Charles of Orléans, Part 3. Welcome back. We left last week with a little bit of foreshadowing that Henry V of England was getting ready for war with France. In France, though, things were starting to look kind of okay, at least for the moment. The French, including Charles, finally agreed to a full peace with each other. Well, almost. I'll I'll get there in just a second. On the 24th of February, 1415. A very special man, at least to the future of France, assisted with the talks. Philip, the Count of Charolais, who will become known, mostly rightly, as long as you aren't his wife, as Philip the Good, participated with his father, John the Fearless, in these talks. This Philip will play a large role in Charles' story, throughout it from here on out, basically. And unlike his father, he was less inclined to just claim that nothing was his fault. In 1415, he was only 18, a little less than two years younger than Charles, and he really hadn't had a chance to prove himself yet. At the time of these negotiations, he was married to one of the royal princesses, Michelle. Spoiler, when she dies without issue, he will marry his uncle's widow. Yes, pulling a page from Thomas of Clarence's book. Further spoilers, that marriage doesn't last long, sadly. Now, I mentioned this peace was mostly agreed, but John the Fearless didn't want to sign because he wanted Kerboche and his fellow butcher-slash-terrorist pardoned. The Dauphin, who was leading negotiations, told his father-in-law to jog on. John made it clear that this was non-negotiable. Within this disagreement, John promised that until these men were pardoned, he would not come to France's defense if England attacked. Yeah, that's some more foreshadowing. In April, all the princes of the blood had been dismissed from Paris. This wasn't a bad thing. It was just a polite way of telling them the king didn't need them right this second and they could return to their own holdings. Makes sense if you think that planting, April, and harvesting are the right times to visit one's holdings. It helps keep everything going smoothly. On the 7th of April, 1415, Henry V sent King Charles a letter basically asking, Where is your embassy? I want to negotiate. Before this letter could have been answered, he sent a second letter to the same effect. 
This is the letter series that Shakespeare added tennis balls to in his famous play. Note, the tennis balls may or may not have happened, but the French were a bit silly to tease Henry V. While Henry had a reputation as a less-than-serious prince, he had never been anything other than impressive in battle, especially siege warfare. Really, he'd been shot in the face with an arrow bolt and continued fighting. He then, after the battle was finished, let his surgeon remove it with no painkillers, and it involved digging into the flesh around the arrowhead to extract it. It's a pretty horrific medical procedure. With the sending of the second letter, Henry began preparing for war. England was in war preparations when the French finally sent their embassy in mid-June. These negotiations lasted four weeks, and Henry did appear ready to sign a treaty, but then, in the end, claimed that the French were not truly looking for peace. The French ambassadors, being in England, had seen Henry's war plans, and they did inform the French court of this, of course. Some in the court had also learned of Henry's private agreement with John the Fearless. The Siege of Hafle began on the 15th of August. The French hadn't even begun to assemble their forces until after the siege started. Remember, they had warning. Since Hafle doesn't involve Charles, I suggest joining us on Patreon to listen to my Henry V special episode if you want to hear more. The French really weren't doing much. Charles even hosted visitors in Blois well after the siege had started. These visitors were Louis of Anjou and Yolande of Aragon. They were joined by their children and their son-in-law, Charles, the future Charles VII. For now, that Charles was a 12-year-old boy who was about to be grateful for his fierce mother-in-law. The French finally realized they needed to do something. Henry V had been besieging Hafle for almost a month. Word came from Paris, and Charles was ready to join the fight, but the king ordered both him and John the Fearless not to come in person. He did tell them to send 500 men-at-arms plus additional soldiers. Charles ignored the order not to come, while making sure he met the requirement to supply men. John ignored the entire order. He ordered his vassals not to send men. Thankfully, or not so much, they ignored him. John did say he would go, but then changed his mind, and John the Fearless's activities throughout this period are sometimes somewhat in question. Let's go with that. Charles rode to Rouen to meet King Charles and the Dauphin. Remember, neither of them will be directly involved with any fighting. Charles was forgiven for ignoring the king's orders. He was joined by Barry, Alençon, Bourbon, and Anjou, along with the counts of O, Vendôme, and Richmond. And Albrey, the Marshal of France, Bosico, was also present. Now, at this point, Barry is 74 years old and will not be personally taking part, though he did supply men and arms to the forces. Anjou, who wasn't old, was unwell with a bladder infection. That pretty much prevented him from riding, and it meant that he would also miss the fight. Henry, finishing his siege of Hafle, began marching towards Calais during the first week of October 1415. Bosico and Albrey led the advanced party to try to stop Henry from crossing the Somme. The main army was led by Bourbon. They headed towards Amiens. You may know this, but the English managed to sneak further east past the French advance party and cross the Somme. The French were then able to shadow the English 
as they marched towards Calais. At this point, the English were hungry, tired, many of them were suffering from dysentery, they just wanted to get on ships and go home or sit down for a while. The French sent word to Henry, basically saying that they would fight him now. He told them that they knew where he was and they could come and fight him where he was marching. He wouldn't be stopping otherwise. The French, of course, chose a location that we call Agincourt for battle. A little note, to show the character of Philip, John the Fearless's son, he badly wanted to join the French forces. John actually had to lock him in one of the Burgundian palaces to prevent Philip from joining the battle. For the rest of his life, Philip was distressed that he had not been there. Others, not so much. Brittany was late to the battle, which worked out well for him in the end, as was the Duke of Brabant, one of John the Fearless's brothers. Sadly, it didn't work out well for him. The Count of Armagnac, Charles's current father-in-law, was just missing. <laughs> Patrons have heard a bit of the Battle of Agincourt from the English side. From the French side, it's a bit different. They outnumbered the English so much, they likely thought they couldn't lose. In addition, they were better rested and hadn't already fought a siege, and I don't think they had dysentery running through their camp. The night before the battle, the French drank a bit too much and didn't get enough rest. Plus, they seemed to have no leadership plan. Part of the problem was that no one had been put in charge in a proper way. Bourbon had been leading the army earlier, but he wasn't the most senior man there. Instead, on the 25th of October 1415, the leaders basically put themselves in the front line and remained mounted. This means, much like Cressy, when they charged, their horses were hit by English arrows and created a barrier that protected the English and made the French easy targets, since they were in heavy armor. Charles was, of course, in this first charge, rules of chivalry and all. He was next to Alençon, when Alençon made an attack on Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, Henry V's youngest brother. Gloucester was lucky. Henry was standing right there and defended him, having part of his armor cut. Alençon, realizing who he was up against and with no way to get back to the French line, attempted to surrender, only to have his head cut off by a random soldier. Charles, though, was lucky. He was able to surrender and was taken hostage, and due to his high rank, would not be executed. In addition to Alençon and a large number of common soldiers, the French lost Brabant and his brother, Philip Count of Nevers. Yes, that's both of John the Fearless's brothers. Barr and his brother John, and Albrey. The only senior Englishman to die was the Duke of York, which will of course lead to Richard III, Duke of York, succeeding to that title. The English managed to capture Charles, of course, Bourbon, O, Vendome, Richemont, who was Henry V's stepbrother, and Boussicot. Yes, this level of loss and capture is as destructive as it sounds. Charles, as the most senior of the French prisoners, was treated well, Henry was an honorable man in most cases. Henry, though, was a bit overexcited. He noticed that Charles wasn't eating or drinking on the march towards Calais. He told his captor that he was fasting. And Henry told Charles he should be in good cheer because God had given the English victory to punish the French. Henry will not be known to history for his thoughtfulness. Henry Mark V, as you might recall. As a noble prisoner, Charles wasn't just placed with a common soldier or even chained. He wasn't restrained in any way. He was treated as a prince. 
and a family member of the king, both King Charles and King Henry. Just one who had chosen the wrong side to fight on. He was allowed to request his secretary, since someone would need to communicate with his council in Orléans. Yes, even though the English were hoping to take over France, they didn't want to take over a barren country. They wanted things to still be working well when they moved in. Due to his capture, Charles all but disappears from French chronicles for the next 25 years. Spoilers. His lands are mentioned, his brothers and son-in-law are mentioned, but not him. His servants were sent for and given safe conduct, and they brought his personal property with him. The other highly-ranked royal prisoner, Bourbon, had the same allowances. Interestingly, Bourbon sent for four of his falconers. No, I'm not kidding. In his defense, he had always been a bit of a sportsman. Bourbon would struggle throughout his imprisonment in a way that Charles didn't seem to. Charles will struggle, and I'll get to that soon, but their personalities were very different. An interesting point that MacLeod brings up is that Bourbon's lands were managed by his wife, and she did an excellent job. Charles' wife, Bonn, on the other hand, hadn't been present in his lands prior to his capture. She was actually only 16 when he was captured. We don't even know if their marriage was consummated. His lands would, instead, be governed by his remaining brother, Philip, and then the bastard. His officers, whom he had appointed and was used to working with, remained in their post. The most important, outside of his brother, was Guillaume Cousant, his chancellor, who was the guardian of Jane, Charles's only child. Cousant had been part of Charles's household for most of his career and was a writer as well as a statesman. He had written a French history book for Charles' brother John during the boy's captivity. One of the more interesting things that Charles needed to worry about while he was in England was the city of Asti in the Duchy of Milan. This city had been part of Valentina's dowry and had gone to Charles on her death. The city had been under the protection of Valentina's brother, Filippo Maria Visconti, who was the Duke of Milan. Filippo Maria appointed a man named Francesco Storza to govern the city, and had Sforza marry his only child, his illegitimate daughter, Bianca Maria. The couple were betrothed in 1430. Despite Charles being in prison, the citizens of Asti were still concerned for him. He was actually rather popular in the city, despite being French. They made Sforza promise to return the city when Charles was released. And he did, but there will be more on this soon. Despite being in the same country for the first time in three years, Charles and his younger brother John weren't held together. They may in fact not have seen each other until very late in their respective stays. They of course wrote regularly. Charles' ransom won't be discussed for, well, years at this point. So Charles' main focus was continuing to raise funds for the ransom of John and his other men that were still being held in England. Despite this cost, he made sure his other brothers, his sister and his daughter, were all cared for. In addition, despite knowing how dire the financial situation was, his servants all seemed to remain. He could inspire loyalty even when being held prisoner. Both Charles and John appear to have become more religious while being held in England, John possibly even more so than Charles. You may remember from his episode, but the Dauphin Louis died on the 18th of December 1415 and was succeeded by his brother John. 
He won't be in this role for long. Sorry, John. John was, of course, married to John the Fearless's niece, which, just like his late brother, put him in the Burgundian sphere of influence. In 1416, both France and England had an illustrious visitor in the person of Holy Roman Emperor-elect Sigismund. He first visited France in March, and his original goal was to bring peace to Catholic Europe so they could go fight heresy with him. His visit to both countries, of course, gave the French prisoners hope that they may get to go home. But no. Henry V even suggested taking the prisoners to Calais so he and Charles VI and Sigismund could negotiate together. But this never happened. Oddly, it was claimed because the prisoners wouldn't agree to Henry's unnamed conditions. We, we don't know what these were. The French didn't help matters, or at least Charles's father-in-law, Bernard of Armagnac, didn't. He began to besiege Harfleur during negotiations. He further dissuaded Charles VI and council from accepting a three-year truce. This lack of cooperation and an obviously divided court is part of what drove Sigismund into the arms of Henry V. Patrons in the heir apparent and usurped tears will already know what happens, but just quickly for the rest of you. Henry and Sigismund sign a treaty that recognizes Henry as the King of England and France, and promises to help him gain France. So no peace treaty to go help fight the heretics, and nothing good for France. This year also brought bad news from France. John, Duke of Berry, died in June at the age of 75. It's a good long life, John. Good job. While John's son had predeceased him, he had two daughters, Bonn and Marie. Marie is actually the wife of Bourbon and obviously was busy managing Bourbon's estates and now has a few more of her own to manage. And Bonn is Charles's mother-in-law and the wife of Bernard. Did I mention that everyone is related? Negotiations for the freedom of prisoners began with a lack of urgency in January 1417. And after this message, you'll hear more. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Bourbon, really struggling with captivity, offered to betray France for his freedom. Henry didn't think he'd actually do it. Bourbon promised to pay homage to Henry if he could keep his French possessions, and he'd pay a ransom of 240,000 écus, so about one quarter of the ransom that had never been paid for John II. Oh, and he'd also hand over his own sons as surety. Plus, he lied that the other prisoners agreed with this. Yes, Bourbon was truly desperate to get out of jail. An interesting note in my source tells us that the biographer for John, Charles's younger brother, claims that Charles didn't worry about his brother's ransom for the first five years that Charles was in English captivity. I can't double check this because the source is only in French and I can't find a copy of this book. I'll keep looking though. Thankfully, in the sense that Charles seems to have been a truly kind man who loves his family, this isn't true according to MacLeod and her reading of Charles's accounts. It appears that throughout his imprisonment, his main focus was getting his brother out, which makes what happens when Charles gets out a bit odd. This makes sense from a practical perspective. No one was negotiating for Charles's release, and Henry V wasn't going to give him up. It also makes sense because Charles wanted his brother freed. As I've mentioned multiple times, he was a family man, and his brothers had been his family since their parents had died when they were all so young. This year, 1417, had a few other important deaths. In April that year, John the Dauphin died, and was of course replaced by his youngest brother, Charles. This Charles will become Charles VII, who probably gets a little too much credit for everything that happens next. That same month, Anjou died. He was only 39, and that bladder infection that kept him out of Agincourt may have been to blame. His son and heir was all of 13, so in almost no position to lead. This severely limited the Armagnac supporters remaining, and made getting John's ransom slightly more difficult. John, though, did help his brother in this. He reminded Charles that their father had loaned a large amount of money to Barry, and that the amount had never been repaid. Charles wrote to Barry's executors, and a portion of the funds were returned. In general, Charles appeared to do everything he could to get his brother released, at least while they were both in England. Charles, since he was brought to England, had been moved around throughout various palaces in London. He was obviously kept away from the coast, and he lived at Henry V's expense during this time. In preparation for Henry's second invasion of France in 1417, he had Charles move to Pontefract Castle under the supervision of Robert Waterton. This castle would not have been a place Charles wanted to go. A few of you may be connecting some dots here. Pontefract is that castle Richard II had been held in prior to his death. To make it even worse, Waterton had been his keeper as well. It's highly unlikely Isabella, Charles's first wife, hadn't told him about these things. 
Waterton, though, despite his potential reputation, was kind to Charles, and it appears that Charles was comfortable in his care. Charles even gave gifts to the wife and children of his jailer. In France, though, things were going, well, but it was a mess. John the Fearless had marched on Paris and helped Isabeau declare herself regent. Charles VI was not in a place mentally to do anything. Plus, John and Isabeau declared that the Dauphin Charles wasn't allowed to have any say in government. This all made it super easy for Henry V. He wasn't having to look behind him as he was attacking Normandy. And on the night of the 28th of May, 1417, things went from bad to worse. The Burgundian faction seized Charles VI that night and then massacred every single member of the Armagnac faction they could find in Paris, including Bernard of Armagnac. The Dauphin Charles was helped by Tanguy de Châtel, the provost of Paris, to escape to Melun. The bastard was also able to flee. It's at this time as well that Philip, Charles and John's brother, begins to fight for the Dauphinist Armagnac Orleanist cause. I'll be referring to it as the Dauphinist's cause, uh, or eventually Charles VII's cause from now on. Philip, only 21, had paid attention to everything Charles had shown him. He began preparing to defend against English attacks. He was joined by John II of Alençon, Charles' future son-in-law. You'll remember Jane's earlier betrothal. For patrons, yes, this is that Alençon. An important little note I should mention. Alençon's father, also John, had been made duke in 1414, mainly because he was so beautiful. I mean, he was actually good at war things as well. And no, I'm not joking with you. He, of course, was the man who died right after attacking Henry V and Humphrey of Gloucester at Agincourt. Apparently, the younger Alençon was just as pretty. They were further joined by Louis III of Anjou, still only 13, Bourbon's son Clermont, and eventually the Dauphin Charles. The first discussion of Charles's ransom occurred more than a year after this massacre and formation of an opposition. In October of 1418, it comes up in negotiations with the Dauphin. Just a month later, John the Fearless had the overturn of his verdict of tyrannicide um, overturned. The Dauphin, trying to save France from its enemies, sent an embassy to John the Fearless to meet to discuss uniting against the English in early 1419. John, who was not actually fearless, really, look at all his past actions, was nervous. Negotiations took months and involved the Dauphin's agents convincing John's mistress that it would be safe. And yet again, I am not joking with you even a little. He finally agreed to meet, and the date of the 10th of September was set. That date, on a bridge at Montreux, John and the Dauphin sat down for a nice bludgeoning to death of John. Usually, I don't like having to kill someone for the second or third time, since there's a lot of overlap. But I do not regret getting to mention John the Fearless's death again. Sorry, pure bias here, but man, it's great. In my notes, I even wrote, and John dies by murder. Bye, John. Sorry, I know I'm harsh to him. Oddly, despite probably not missing John the Fearless at all, the murder did distress Charles. He felt it left France in a dangerous position. No one knew how the new Duke of Burgundy, Philip, would act. Philip, much like Valentina had done decades earlier, swore vengeance on the Dauphin. 
Philip, who will become Philip the Good, of course, then joined the English forces. This, of course, also puts him in opposition to releasing the French prisoners. I should remind you that Henry V hadn't been particularly keen on releasing his prisoners either. Charles was, after all, next in line after the Dauphin, and followed by his brother Philip, then it was John. So Henry holds two of the first four to the line of the throne of France. With the death of John the Fearless, Henry actually ordered an increase on the guard for Charles. He wasn't allowed any outside recreation, which would have been uncomfortable for him, but was devastating for Bourbon, who was being held with him. Really, Henry wanted to keep them from getting murdered or escaping. Henry was also worried that Waterton was being too friendly with both his prisoners. He had them split. Bourbon was moved into the care of another retainer, and Charles was moved to Fotheringay, under the care of Thomas Burton. He was placed with Arthur of Richmond, O, and Bosico. Throughout this period, Charles was feeling a bit abandoned by his servants back in Orléans. To be fair to them, there was a bit of a war going on, and they needed to focus on those preparations. But his letters show some despair. He wouldn't have been happy to learn of the Treaty of Troy being signed on the 21st of May, 1420. This would have been heartbreaking for all the prisoners. In addition, hearing that Henry V had married Catherine of Valois, the youngest daughter of Charles VI, would have just been piling the pain higher. On the 8th of June, Charles and Bourbon were moved to London for a meeting with the King's Council. On the 20th of July, Bourbon was given permission to go to Dieppe to try to negotiate for the funds needed to pay his ransom. This will not go well. In, in fact, nothing goes well for Bourbon in England, if I'm being honest. Henry also allowed Arthur of Richmond, you know, his stepbrother, to leave. His hope was that Richmond would persuade Brittany, also Henry's stepbrother, to join Henry's side. For the moment, Brittany will say no to Henry. At this point, Charles still hadn't been offered even the chance to raise a ransom because no one had named a price. Charles was able to send a letter to his wife through Bourbon. He joked that if Bourbon didn't know the look of Bonn, he should just look for the most accomplished lady. Through his poetry in the future, Charles and Bond's close relationship becomes clear. Their marriage may have never been consummated, but they did care about each other. Even if Charles had been offered his freedom for a ransom, paying it would have been difficult. Due to the fighting that was occurring near his lands, his brother Philip was struggling to even send funds for John's ransom, so Charles was something no one could even worry about. The fighting also meant that even meeting French needs was difficult because peasants couldn't produce food. It actually sounds like a short-term version of the anarchy. Sometime between either late July or early September 1420, Charles and John received news that would devastate them. Philip had died. There isn't a recorded cause of death, and it appears that he died suddenly of an illness. The Orléans household was caught completely off guard. It was unexpected, and it might have thrown the entire cause for a loop. But the Orléanists were lucky. They still had Valentina's favorite son, the one that wasn't even hers, the bastard of Orléans. He was only 16. He'd lost his father as an infant, his adoptive mother not much later, 
He had watched one older brother be sent to England as a hostage, heard of his guardian and beloved oldest brother taken after Agincourt, and had now lost yet another person he loved. And now he was in charge of his family and cause. Oh, and he wasn't even free when he received news of his brother's death. Yes, he had been taken hostage sometime after the massacre in 1418, and his ransom had just been paid by Philip prior to Philip's death. He wasn't even released until August of 1420. Thankfully for the Orleanist cause, he would prove himself a more than capable leader. I do want to note, the reason I call him the Bastard, and he called himself the Bastard of Orléans, is because referencing Orléans was more prestigious than any other honours he would ever receive. In March of 1421, things should have gotten easier for Charles and John, but especially for John. The Duke of Clarence was killed in an ill-planned attack that year. Remember, Clarence is the man who's holding John for ransom. His stepsons, John and Thomas, were also taken hostage. In case you're curious, that John is the father of previous past subject, Lady Margaret Beaufort. John, Charles's younger brother that is, was transferred into the Dowager Duchess's custody. She was apparently rather cruel to him, to the point where Charles sent him extra funds for food. Charles, though, was hoping to trade her sons for his brother. Charles even wrote to the Dowager Duchess of Clarence asking for this to happen. But sadly, it didn't work out. This death set up a bad period for Henry V and might have made things harder for the prisoners in England. Remember, Clarence is his brother. I've mentioned that Brittany rejected Arthur of Richmond's overtures and, to this effect, signed a treaty with the Dauphinus faction. This treaty included the marriage of Charles' sister, Margaret, to Brittany and Richmond's youngest brother. This will actually eventually make her the grandmother of Anne of Brittany. Yes, that means that Louis Twelfth and Anne of Brittany were first cousins once removed, but everyone's related and papal dispensation was received. There is a note that Charles wasn't happy, but no explanation as to why. My best guess is he felt he should have had some say on who his sister married. And he actually should have been happy. This would further secure the Bretons to his cause. For the moment. He did send his sister a Book of Hours as a wedding gift. Heads up, I will be covering what a Book of Hours is in this week's This Too Shall Pass. Of course, he missed another big event. His daughter's formal betrothal. There is a further sad moment for Charles and the other prisoners. In June, Boussicot, the Marshal of France, died in custody at 54. The Dauphinist cause had a few high points through the first bit of 1422, until the Dauphin got discouraged and gave up in spring of 1422. You'll probably notice throughout this subject, and if you've listened to Joan of Arc, that the Dauphin could never be described as a man with fortitude. He could keep going, but he needed to be convinced or else he'd just give up. It was during this period that Brittany decided maybe he wanted to go hang out with the English again, at least for the moment. And then the wheels came off for England. On the 31st of August, Henry V dies of something that caused a bit of wasting, but probably wasn't dysentery. While expressing his last wishes, he's supposedly quoting as saying, quote, 
And take care that you, not from prison, my fair cousin, the Duke of Orléans, the Count of O, and the Lord of Godcourt, until my fair son Henry reaches years of discretion. And for the other, do as it seems good to you, end quote. He probably said that in a much less nice voice. Now, this may be apocryphal, but it makes for a nice story. Even if he hadn't said it, he had written something to the effect in his last will. And now England has a nine-month-old as king. Of course, on the 21st of October that year, France gets itself an 11-month-old as king, because that's when Charles VI dies. This means that Henry VI is also meant to be Henri II. I will keep calling him Henry VI. This also means I'll be changing what I called the Dauphin. He is now Charles VII. Of course, this kingship is disputed, but regardless of who was king, Charles wasn't going anywhere for a long time. Charles wouldn't find out how long he'd be stuck in England until around Christmas of 1422. His men brought more money for John's ransom and told him the bad news. In May the next year, they brought even more bad news. Philip, the soon-to-be-good, had signed the Treaty of Amiens and recognized Henry VI as Henri II of France. The English regent in France, Henry V's brother, John, Duke of Bedford, had married Philip's sister. Oh, and Arthur of Richmond had married another Burgundian sister, who happened to be the widow of the Dauphin Louis. She was unimpressed with this marriage step-down, and Bedford was now in control of the military campaign in France. The English council as well seemed uninterested in Charles and the other prisoners' well-being. They were now forced to finance their own imprisonment. Charles had a little victory when he was able to arrange to have his wine shipped directly from Orléans to England duty-free. Yes, for avoiding some taxes. Boo, for still being a prisoner. Bourbon had, over this period, failed in his attempts to raise funds and had been brought back to England. And there was general bad news from France. The Dauphinus cause was not going well. Charles's son-in-law, Alençon, had been taken prisoner in August of 1424 and would remain so for three years. This will actually come up towards the end. But this moment is where things actually started to go okay. There was the start of a four-year stalemate, mainly due to events in England. This was the first period that Humphrey started making trouble for his older brother, Bedford. Now, I'm of a split mind about Humphrey. In some ways, he really is trying to uphold Henry V's wishes, but in others, he's trying to get power for himself. I feel he would have done really well under Henry V's leadership, but since Henry had died, there was no chance for that. Humphrey had married the Dauphin John's widow, Jacqueline of Hainaut, in 1422. The problem with this, well, Jacqueline was still kind of sort of married to John, Duke of Brabant, who was one of Philip the Good's cousins. She had received an annulment in England that wasn't recognized anywhere else. You can see how Humphrey could be a bit difficult. Remember, his second marriage actually goes even worse than this one. Bedford actually left France in January of 1426 and stayed in England until about April of 1428 just to sort his brother out. 
While Bedford was gone, Arthur of Richmond switched sides again. In case you've lost track, that means that he is now on the French Dauphinist side with Charles. In not-so-shocking news, the other leaders were not trusting of him at first. But Charles VII gave him the constableship, under a bit of supervision. And with this growing Dauphinist party, I'll stop for the week. Before I go, I would like to welcome my newest patrons, Courtney and Anne. Anne actually has her own podcast, Vulgar History, which some of you may already listen to. Please give her a listen if you're interested in the scandalous stories of women in history. At the time of writing this episode, she had just finished a series of Mary Queen of Scots. Give it a listen. Also check out her Instagram. She does some pretty fun posts on there. I'll be back next week. Do make sure to download This Too Shall Past on Wednesday, where I'll be discussing books of hours. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. <laughs>